Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're revisiting the discussion around policing and racial injustice and hearing what reform ideas new county leaders have. Last summer, the nation grappled with lots of protest and debate about police violence and injustice towards people of color. The same conversations happened here in Tucson, especially in light of two high-profile deaths in police custody last spring. At a Tucson City Council meeting last month, proposed changes to the way the city pays police officers sparked concern from some council members and the community. The Tucson Police Department has a retention problem. Police Chief Chris Magnus says the department lost 40 sworn officers in 2020 and expects to lose more unless there's some sort of incentive for them to stay. Magnus says that part of the issue is that TPD's salaries are just not competitive with other police departments like the Queen Creek Police Department near Phoenix. The base pay in Queen Creek is $19,000 higher than our base pay for an equivalent three- to four-year officer. Magnus says officers with a few years of experience are particularly attractive to other agencies. So are employees who diversify the makeup of those departments, like women officers or officers of color. Magnus says that when an officer leaves TPD after only a few years, the department loses out on all of the resources that went into training that officer. We have some of the most highly trained officers. In fact, we invest over $150,000 just to get officers from the point where uh, they're hired through their first year. TPD's proposed solution to the issue is twofold. First, an increase to officers' salaries that would make the department more competitive. Second, starting a pay-for-performance pilot program. Under the program, officers could earn points in categories like education, training, and leadership. Combined with years of service, those points would allow officers a clear way to rise up the pay scale. Magnus says the program sends a clear signal to officers that hard work will be rewarded. It also aligns the payouts that come with this with the actual contributions and successes that employees make that even go above and beyond what we expect of them. And so as a result, it, it, it retains and it engages high performers. Council members had questions about what lasting effects the program might have on the city budget. Ward 1 Councilwoman Lane Santa Cruz brought up concerns about what message a police pay increase would send to the community. We're in a social and you know, moral crossroads around our our police force and our police funding and, and what that looks like for communities. Santa Cruz doesn't believe paying officers better will reduce instances of police brutality. She pointed to the case of Carlos Adrian Ingram Lopez, who died last year after being restrained by TPD officers. The city paid his family more than $2 million in a settlement. Santa Cruz and other council members said that constituents contacted them to voice their opposition to the pay increase because community members had not been given a chance to weigh in on the budget proposal. That I don't feel comfortable that we haven't engaged folks. I got calls um, all weekend um, from community members upset that we we hadn't we hadn't talked to anybody about this and why were we taking the vote on it this week? 
Council members also wanted to know how the proposed changes in officer pay would affect the community safety pilot program, which the council approved last summer. The pilot program focuses on alternative ways to address social issues that do not involve police. That includes hiring more social workers and expanding community outreach. The council ultimately decided not to take any action on the proposed pay changes for the police department. Mayor Rahina Romero agreed that more information is needed. I just want to make sure that we're making the best informed, best informed decision. And, and I don't think that we're completely ready today to, to take that step. One of the groups that opposes giving TPD officers a raise is Black Lives Matter Tucson. Tierra Rainey with the group explained her opposition to the proposal. I think for many different reasons we have a problem with it. The first being that really this is antithetical to everything that we've been fighting for in terms of defund, right? So specifically when you're talking about the history of TPD, the fact that they had several in-custody deaths last year, there has still been no accountability for that. And then to justify that they need $20,000, potentially $20,000 increases on salary to remain competitive is just completely tone deaf. Um, there's been really no reflection on the fact that why are we continuing to pay for services that are not in fact keeping, you know, citizens safe, specifically black, brown and indigenous community members. Um, and it felt like a slap in the face, quite frankly. So if the city has that money, assuming they have it, they wouldn't have proposed it otherwise, one would assume, what would you like to see them spend that money on instead? I think that they've actually done a really fantastic job with distributing the CARES Act money in a way that is really tackling, I think, the, the really complex moment of poverty that we're in right now, because the, the pandemic has amplified, I think, many trends that have been happening in Tucson for a very long time, which is the fact that we have a very soft job market. Um, you have swaths of folks that are, are teetering on the edge of eviction or already being evicted. Um, however, that's just a step in the right direction, right? Because CARES Act money is ultimately federal. It's not coming from the city's actual budget. They're not reallocating anything. And so, you know, the idea that, oh, using CARES Act money somehow absolves them of having to actually tackle the issue of defunding the police um, for them to actually, you know, have a reflective conversation about how we are actually investing in community. They gave TPD an additional $2 million in their budget last year. Right. That's two million dollars that could have gone towards housing assistance, two million dollars that could have gone towards food assistance. Families are hurting. Community is hurting. And what they've done is a start. It is not enough yet. When your organization talks about defunding the police, just so people understand, do you mean that we should get rid of the police entirely or end the current system and rebuild something different? I think that that's actually a really excellent question um, because really a lot of folks don't really understand the history of defund. It is not something that just popped up magically last summer and that's a really cute slogan. It's not. It's not just there to be inflammatory. Really defund is about creation. It's not just about the destruction of something, right? And so part of it is about reframing how do we actually define safety as a community. And what we're finding with research, I mean, across the country, is that when people are 
housed, when people have food on their tables, crime actually drops significantly. And what we're seeing is pouring millions and millions and millions more into militarization of the police or giving them sensitivity training when we're finding that still black, brown, and indigenous people are disproportionately incarcerated and brutalized in these interactions. What we're saying is continuing continually pouring money into that system is it makes no sense, right? Why aren't we actually investing in things that we know for a fact make communities safer? And why can't we reimagine what safety is beyond um having people who uh, have guns and, you know, respond with SWAT team, uh, you know, violence as as the only solution. We recognize that that often is not what de-escalates conflict. And so really, this is asking our communities to have deeper discussions and reflections about how do we get to this point? Policing did not look like this even 40 years ago. And in fact, if we talk about the historical legacy of policing, right, it came out of slave catching patrols, right? Why are we fighting to maintain something that grew out of that? Last year, TPD said they were going to make some reforms. One of the things TPD was working on was putting in a mental health team, uh, for example. Are any of those reforms meaningful and going in the right direction? And if so, which ones? I will be really frank, no. <laughs> um, I think that really we're having two totally separate conversations, right? So to them, you know, having a mental health unit um, is a solution that's still pouring money into policing, right? Because they're still trained police officers. And sure, you can, you know, put them in new uniforms and maybe, you know, create some more protocols, but it doesn't change the inherent nature of what they're doing. What we're saying is, what you are providing to community is not keeping us safe. I don't care how you rebrand it or repackage it. I don't want a million more dollars poured into TPD or the Sheriff's Department to create a hybrid pilot so that they can rebrand what they do for community. We are literally saying we want that money to go into non-carceral solutions to programs that are not run by the police. I, I, I don't know how we can be any more implicit about that. After the word got out about the potential pay increase for the Tucson police officers, you all put out a call on social media for people to call the city council members to give them their thoughts on the issue. Do you think that made a difference in the council's response? Absolutely. And they acknowledged that in the study session that they got a lot of angry phone calls and emails. Um, and I think really, again, part of it is this continual aspect of TPD saying that they're they're about transparency. And then they snuck this, you know, at the last minute into a study session, which is not open to the public. Right. It's this continued lack of transparency and this like cleverness of trying to work around community um, to get more money is the thing that we are incredibly frustrated with. I think the community had every right to call. Um, and really, we had less than 24 hours to respond. Right. Um, the fact that TPOA co-signed on this plan, I think, should be the red flag. You know, if a union is saying, oh, yeah, we're happy to completely restructure the way we're getting paid um, and somehow it's cost saving. I think we should all be suspicious about that as a community. Some people will hear this undoubtedly and and disagree with you. Some people will hear this and and agree with you. Is there room in this for compromise between the two extreme ends, if you will? 
I mean, I don't know if I necessarily categorize it as extreme, but I recognize that that's my own bias, right? And I think that the reality is that this is a journey. I didn't start off as an abolitionist. If you had talked to me probably seven years ago, I'd be like, no way, I'm not, I'm not about that, right? But what happened is I also began to really do the work. I started to be in community. I started to see um, just cycles of violence. I saw my sister arrested unjustly at a protest, right, and dragged on the ground. I don't think that everyone necessarily has to be at a point where they're fully ready to get rid of policing tomorrow. But I think that the reality is that most people agree that there is way too much money in that system and that more of it should be distributed to a lot of other things that have been cut over the years, whether it's public education, whether it's social services. We all agree that those things have been underfunded for decades. It's not just something new that's happened. And I think that that's kind of like the point of agreement that actually the vast majority of Americans agree with, even if they don't like the slogan. That was Tierra Rainey with Black Lives Matter Tucson. This week, we're discussing policing and prosecution. Pima County attorney Laura Conover, no relation, took the helm in January. She started her term by announcing some policy changes, including working to reduce the use of cash bail and focusing instead on conditions of release. If someone is an ongoing danger to society, they're, they're going to be held. We're going to argue that they should be held and separated from the community until such time as we can deem it to be safe again. But other than that, we don't want to tie cash to release. It, it should have nothing to do with cash. It should be the conditions of release that will help ensure that a person uh, shows up for their court hearings and their income should have nothing to do with that. So what would some of those conditions of release be that guarantees somebody returns for trial? Well, it starts with the extraordinary talent uh, and dedication at the pretrial services agency, which is a branch of the court itself. And those pretrial services officers act really just like probation officers, but on the front end of the case. And so they can be assigned to help monitor people and help them through the process to make sure that they're showing up for for court and responsible to the charges against them. But what that means is that instead, they're out in the community and they're not separated from their family and their children and they're still on the work site and employment's not interrupted. And all of these things, you know, the data shows is so much safer and healthier for our community. This is a new idea for Pima County, but my understanding is it's not a new idea around the country. Is that correct? That's precisely correct. It's been going on for years, sweeping the nation, trying to get away from cash. uh, Because it's really a problem on, on both sides. We don't want people trapped in jail for no reason other than they can't pay a low cash bond. And we also don't want people charged with very violent crimes who appear to be a threat to society who can pay a very high bond and walk right back into our community. You also directed the prosecutors in your office to be aware of what you called accidental deportations. What does that mean? We want them to be aware of the collateral consequences that can occur based off of certain plea agreements. 
if one plea agreement would deprive uh, a commercial trucker from the rust of his life's work. But if you change the language just slightly in the plea uh, that didn't change any other outcome, but it would allow him to, you know, feed his family for the next 20 years, then that's the outcome you want to, you want to search for. It's, you know, even more important when we're looking at immigration consequences. If we're looking at a low level nonviolent case where we don't even want the person incarcerated, but because of the language in the plea agreement, we accidentally or unintentionally take part in getting them deported to a country they haven't seen in 20 years, separated from their wife and children, then we have an outcome we, we didn't intend for. And we can train to prevent that. And so I'm delighted to say that last week we had our first office-wide all-prosecutor training on exactly that issue. Those are both some pretty big changes, but I have a feeling they're not the only ones coming. Can you give us a preview of some other things you may be looking to change in the, the Pima County Attorney's Office? We are looking to bring in what we think would be Arizona's first restorative justice program, of course, with a huge tip of the hat to our brothers and sisters on tribal lands who've been using restorative justice since the beginning of time. It's something that's, um, you know, in use all over the nation in the modern criminal justice system and criminal justice reform that's going on. For people who haven't heard of restorative justice, can you give us a, a quick definition so people understand better what you're talking about? So it's very victim centric and it can happen very close in time to the incident itself. And the victim can be invited to consider restorative justice, which is when the defendant can apply to the program, can demonstrate uh, a full acceptance of their behavior, and then the parties are guided through creating an agreement that would restore the victim nearly to whole as possible. And eventually, there is a meeting where, you know, preferably chairs are put in a circle. The accused is counseled about how their behavior had an impact on a person, on a family, on an entire neighborhood sometimes. Then the probation department, um, or in this case, perhaps pretrial, will monitor their success through the agreement. When you can get it close to the time of arrest, a victim may get resolution so much sooner than the normal process. And a person arrested has a true opportunity to not have this impact their record and their life the rest of their life. If they're successful, they can avoid that imprint that can cost them consequences in education and housing and employment for the rest of their life. That was Pima County Attorney Laura Conover. She's also planning to take on a project to help qualified people overturn low-level marijuana convictions under the recently passed Proposition 207, which legalized recreational marijuana in Arizona. Pima County voters elected former Sheriff Chris Nanos back into the job last November. Sheriff Nanos says he's working on restructuring staff after a wave of recent retirements. 
He's looking to evaluate whether the department is truly short-staffed and how they can possibly reallocate staff and resources. Nano says he's also looking to work on reform measures. During the campaign, he promised to stop seeking money from Operation Stone Garden, a federal grant program used for immigration enforcement. We asked if that's still his plan. I want to assist all law enforcement agencies in this in this community uh, to include Border Patrol and FBI and DEA and and TPD and Moran, all everybody. And we do. We actually have people assigned to a lot of task forces involving those agencies. We work close with them. Stone Garden was a different animal in my eyes because it wanted us to not just be involved with them, but actually do their job for them. And I don't see us doing that. That's not, we're not trained to do their job. And I don't think any of our deputies ever signed up and says, hey, I want to be a Border Patrol agent. This should never be a money-making venture. And, and that's kind of what I was feeling like this was. And we don't need to be there. In recent months, the last year especially, we've seen police departments, including Tucson Police Department, get involved in some controversies um, dealing with how their officers and deputies um, have interacted with minority communities. We haven't seen that out of the Pima County Sheriff's Department, really. Why is that? It is a completely different environment. Uh, Chief Magnus and I have, have had this discussion in the past. It, you know, he has a tough job. He will tell you it. Uh, Their officers are working in an urban situation that is very, uh, sometimes very intense uh, situations for them. We are, one, uh, we're miles apart sometimes from the next backup. So it's just a different world. We are a rural agency. Yes, we're a rural agency positioned in a metropolitan area that relies a lot on us, but it is a different job. And it's uh, the dynamics, the, the, the demographics are different. That's not to say we don't concern ourselves with what's going on out in the world, with, particularly when you look at racial profiling or, or some, just some of the things that have happened with police tactics. Um, one of the programs I'll be putting into place is a community um, a, a, a board that I will actually go out to some of the community leaders from the black community, the African-American community, the, the Hispanic community, the, the LGBTQ community. I, I want to reach out to those community leaders, tap them on the shoulders and say, please come and join us. Help us do this right. Come and look at what, how we train and what it is we train and why we train. And, and then come back to me after sitting in some of those academy classes and, and ask me, how come you do this? Why don't you do that? And give me some ideas. I want that input from them. But even greater than that, I anticipate putting them into our discipline panels or our officer-involved shooting panels where they sit there with all of my command team and hear the investigators of those incidents come forward, present the case. Everybody in that room discusses it and coming up with ideas as to what we should or shouldn't do or how things happen. And then they present it to me what they believe that discipline should be. Because to me, if 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 we have, God forbid, but if we have an incident that that is a bad incident where we, we, we well, we've just done wrong. I would rather the leader of that community, one of its own, stand up there and tell them, hey, look, here's what the cops did and here's why, and give them that explanation. And if we're wrong, then I'll stand up there and say, yeah, we're wrong and we're going to fix this. 
one of the things kind of to that end for community perception, if you will, or letting the community at large see what goes on uh, that you express some support for during the campaign was body cameras. But when you look at it through a, a law enforcement officer's eyes versus the public's eyes, sometimes you see different things. So how do body cameras help? Well, so, well, first of all, they help in, in a number of regards. Um, I, I hope that that I, I think there's studies out there that show that, you know, if you're being recorded, you tend to understand that and know that. And so you step up your game a little in terms of professionalism. That's always a plus for us. I mean, it helps me a bunch. But more importantly to me is everybody has these cameras in their hands now. And I used to think that, boy, you know, I don't need cameras to keep my people in line. It's not that though. And I even educated myself on that. It is about somebody showing a camera, a video of 10 seconds. I would rather show you all of it. So if I have another two and a half minutes, I want you to see that. I want to see it. I want to see it because two things are going to happen. One, I'll look at it and go, wow, we really messed up. That is bad. And we'll deal with it. Or two, I'll look at it and go, wait, 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 wait. There's a little more to this story. Here's what else you didn't see or what else you didn't know. So it definitely going to help. And, and I'll be honest with you. My deputies, they are crying for these things. They know it's a benefit. How much do you end up working on these reforms with not just Mr. Huckleberry, but also the Pima County attorney? And she certainly has some reforms and changes in mind. Right now, I'm learning what the county and the city and all these government entities have done for reformation. And I want us to partake in and participate. But for me, the goal is simply this. Beyond police reform, I look at judicial reform, our, 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 the jail, which is my responsibility. I want to shrink the footprint that that jail has on this community. I want us to find better ways to serve those who have absolutely done wrong and find out a better way to deal with them, not just lock them up. Maybe we'll find out by trying this that I'm wrong and that we should just lock them up. But I think we owe it to ourselves to try something different because it hasn't been working. I know we're, we're doing all we can to reduce our jail population because of COVID-19. That should be, a, a be at our forefront, there's no doubt. But I'm sitting back and waiting and watching and hoping that we get beyond COVID-19 and we actually start putting efforts into reducing the population, not because of a pandemic, but because it's the right thing to do. That was Pima County Sheriff Chris Nanos. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.